When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Today we're talking bobwhite quail and quail habitat with Frank Longcarriage and Kyle Hedges. Welcome to the show for episode number 78. by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. New for the 2019 hunting season, shareable waypoints with all the details, colors, information that you have saved on your phone. You can drop a pin or a track to a friend or a buddy, and you can even later revoke access to that pin or point if circumstances deem that necessary. Go to onyxmaps.com, download the Hunt app today, and a quick little hot tip, if you're not a member of the Ruffed Grouse Society or you need to renew your membership, head over to ruffed, R-U-F-F-E-D.org 
you sign up for the Rough Grouse Society, you get yourself a sweet t-shirt and a 12-month subscription to Onyx Hunt by signing up at the $60 conservation level. T-shirt plus Onyx plus four issues of Covers Magazine, that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. R-U-F-F-E-D dot org. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. You haven't experienced Grouse Camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. Ladies and gentlemen, it's October, which means the time is now for Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. I actually got a call yesterday from Jerry Havel, the owner of Pine Ridge. He was in the truck with a client. They were driving from one cover to the next. The client happened to be a listener of the podcast, and they called to say hi and tell me that said client had shot his first two woodcock that morning, and they were heading out to try to shoot a few more birds that afternoon. Pretty great stuff. That's a very, very typical day at Piner's Grouse Camp, especially in October. Find out more about the Pine Ridge experience by visiting pinerysgrousecamp.com and by Dog Trick Callers. Absolutely loving my Dogtra TNB dual system. I was looking to add an integrated beeper to one of my callers this year. The TNB dual does that, and I love the new system that Dogtra has designed and engineered. Find out more about Dogtra callers and all their products by visiting dogtra.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots. Pretty much rained all week here today. I'm heading in the grouse covers this afternoon. You can bet I'll be wearing my gum leaves, and I will not be worried about wet feet. If you're looking for a dry, comfortable, and durable, long-lasting rubber boot, you've got to check out Gumleaf Boots by visiting gumleafusa.com. And when you're there, use the promo code PUP10. It'll get you 10% off your order from gumleafusa.com. And by Gordy and Sons Outfitters, when your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. When your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail. At Gordy and Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt, not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about the gear, the guides, the expertise, all of it by visiting GordyAndSons.com. And finally by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design. Frame steel door. Everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. I got a Dakota 283 G3 medium in the back of my truck. I love it. Go get you one. Head over to Dakota283.com and check out their new lowered pricing structure. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Gretchen Finn. Gretchen left us a review on iTunes, and for that, we thank her. Project Upland t-shirt headed her way very soon. Thank you, Gretchen. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. You can do that by leaving us a review like Gretchen did, leave the podcast a rating, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I mentioned it earlier, October has arrived. This is the time, especially for a Northwoods rough grouse and woodcock hunter like myself. I hope everybody's having a safe, successful hunting season. I wish you all the best of luck. Get out there, get after it. We're going to jump into today's episode. Our guest today, Frank Longcarriage and Kyle Hedges, 
both wildlife management biologists for the Missouri Department of Conservation and private upland consultants for Land and Legacy are joining us to talk about bobwhite quail habitat, the largest quail research project ever conducted in the state of Missouri, and we even mix in a little Missouri rough grouse talk, believe it or not. Without further ado, let's welcome to the Project Upland podcast of Land and Legacy, Frank Longcarriage and Kyle Hedges. All right, gentlemen, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. Frank and Kyle, thank you so much for joining me today. Looking forward to this conversation. Let's find out who our guests are on the Project Upland podcast today. Frank, why don't we start with you? Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and your work for Land and Legacy. Yeah, my name is Frank Longkerich. I'm a um, wildlife management biologist working in southwest Missouri. I uh, have studied and worked with Bob Whites for... Oh, well over 15 years uh, before that, I studied greater prairie chickens in the Flint Hills and uh, got my master's degree working on prairie chicken uh, work. I've also done quite a bit of prairie chicken restoration work in Missouri. Uh, I've been a lifelong bird hunter. I uh, grew up with Brittany uh, and Setters. Uh, we bird hunted in the fall, and that's pretty much what we did. It was just a way of life, and so I, I took that on through my career. I've uh, just always been enamored with upland game birds. I knew I wanted to set a career path, either studying or managing, or in the best case, what I'm doing now is studying and managing upland game birds. So uh, it's been great. Uh, right now I work as a consultant. Uh, also, besides the, the work that I do in Missouri on the public lands management side, I work as a consultant for land and legacy consulting. I'm an upland game bird specialist. For, for those folks. Awesome. That is a, that's a ton to chew on, Frank. I, I appreciate that, that intro and we're going to dive into some of that stuff, but first let's hear from Kyle. Yeah. Similar history. So I grew up in Southeast Kansas. I grew up bird hunting. We didn't duck hunt. We didn't deer hunt. We bird hunted, fished in the summer, bird hunted in the wintertime. I've been in the professional uh, wildlife management biologist type roles, I guess, for 20 four years now while time flies but northern kansas for several years and then um, northwest missouri and now i'm down in the southwest part of the state as well so public lands management all 24 years uh, all of that focused on upland habitat primarily uh, for quail pheasants prairie chickens just depending on where i was and the, then as he kind of alluded to, we, we're fortunate we've also got to, to study these birds, too. So I'm sure we'll discuss more, but Frank and I co-led a, a giant quail research project on public lands here over the last seven years. It just wrapped up last year. So biggest quail study ever conducted in the state of Missouri. And we were glad to be on the on the front of that and get to have our hands on the data. And, and we're processing all that right now. Um, lifetime bird hunter, like he said, still do it. In fact, Frank and I go on trips and hunt together and love it. Uh, and also now recently added as a upland bird consultant with Land and Legacy as a side job. Uh, so Frank and I are, are teaming up to do that as well. Excellent. I want to chat Land and Legacy briefly, but first I've got this idea, uh, not, not necessarily an idea, but this thing popped into my head when you guys both said you are Missouri- Upland Bird Public Land Managers, and recently I saw an article, and I had heard about this last year when it happened. Missouri just took 
uh, part in a roughed grouse transplant, taking roughed grouse from Wisconsin down to Missouri. Is that correct, or am I thinking Mississippi? Do I have the state right? No, you've got it right. Uh, it's a three-year project, so transplanting roughed grouse from Wisconsin, north-central Wisconsin, down to sort of uh, northeast uh, Missouri, so between Columbia and St. Louis, there's some there's some public land management and some private land management that's gone on to uh, benefit rough grouse in that area. A lot of early successional forestry management. So the Wisconsin DNR and the Missouri Department of Conservation entered into an agreement to, to trap and translocate birds. A three-year project. Last year was year one. I'm leaving next week to go scout uh, for birds. Uh, Kyle and I both were on the project last year's trapping rough grouse. We aren't leading that project by any means. That's kind of out of our out of our region, but we've been able to to take part in it. Uh, so it's a it's a really cool experience that we've got to experience. So you know, we it was it was unique. We we went up and hunted rough grouse the year before, or so year before last, and we went back and trapped in the same places where we had hunted. So it was a kind of a unique experience to go back and and trap some of those same places that we had Kyle and I had hunted. Wow, that is that is fascinating. Uh, I'm glad I had it right. I, I was I was thinking that was the correct state. I knew the grouse came from Wisconsin, and that was going to be my next question: how involved the two of you were in that project. So it sounds like maybe not at the forefront of the project, but enough to speak to it. And I think it's an interesting topic. I would like to ask you a few more questions about that. But first, since this podcast sort of was inspired via some connections I made with Adam at Land and Legacy and some of the work, uh, some of the partnerships that we did with Rough Grouse Society and some friends over there. I do want to talk Land and Legacy. So both of you gentlemen are in the, you work in the public land space for agencies, but you are also working for Land and Legacy as consultants on the side, uh, specific to Upland Game Birds. Kyle, let's start with you. Tell me a little bit about what Land and Legacy is, what they do, and what the opportunities are for people with Land and Legacy. So Land and Legacy, they're fairly new, a consulting company. They've been around a couple years now, but they're making a pretty big splash. Consulting uh, regarding private lands, habitat management, not that they couldn't be you know, public lands or corporate lands, but for the most part, all their customer base has been private lands management. And to date, they've been mostly focused on deer habitat. Uh, both Adam and Matt, uh, the founders of the company, are came from real heavy deer background. And one of their, I guess, specialties of land and legacy or what diff, what sets them apart from a lot of other consulting agencies across the United States is they tend to focus on what we call in Missouri natural community management. They tend to focus on each property's natural resources and what those historic disturbances were to maintain those ecosystems or those resources on a property. So they're very much in favor of you know, using fire to your advantage, um, not just managing with food plots all across. They do prescribe some food plot type management, but they're very focused on fire and timber stand improvement and woodland management and all of those things that are more holistic in nature. And as a result, you increase your deer herd or quality or whatever the, whatever the landowner is after. 
they've just recently added Frank and I. They were starting to get a few hits of people asking for some upland advice, and they didn't feel like that was their area expertise, and they don't want to go beyond what they feel you know they can truly help a landowner with. So that's why they added us uh, into this mix is is to be able to deal with those consults, and they'll still continue to do mostly focus on the deer and turkey type consults. Got it. Land and legacy are they? They're not just local to Missouri. They are are they regional? Are they nationwide? I, I know they're a they're a, a younger company. So what's the geographic breakdown look like? Then the last uh, two years, last count that I knew of, they've already been in twenty six different states. Okay. The majority of it from Missouri East. They do a lot of stuff up in the Northeast. Matt Dye, one of the co-founders along with Adam Keith. Matt is actually from the East Coast, I believe Virginia. So they've had a lot of consults from Texas, Kansas, but all the way back to then Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, all the way up the East Coast, all the way up into the Northeast. So yeah, they've, they're making a big, big splash and they've been across about half of the United States already, right? Plans for folks. Excellent. Yeah, they're certainly doing the right thing as far as awareness goes. I mean, I'm starting to see them starting to see their name get around. They're on different podcasts and, and I see their stuff and, and obviously getting to know uh, Adam a little bit and, and now chatting with you guys. It's, it's really, it's neat to see what land and legacy is doing as far as the upland bird stuff goes. You know, it's interesting. They, they bring on, you know, Kyle, you and Frank as Upland Bird consultants in Missouri, is that just based on where the demand was? Were they were they hearing from landowners specifically in Missouri looking for Upland Bird stuff? Or are you consulting on Upland Bird projects kind of across that geographic region? Uh, Frank? Well, it, it's funny you mention that. We, uh, because of the agency for which we work um, and the services that they provide, it, uh, we don't provide private land consultation services within Missouri. But we do, for the remainder of the United States, can provide those services. So our, our specialty is, is uh, bobwhite quail management. <clears throat> However, we've got extensive experience with prairie grouse, so, so greater prairie chicken in, in, in particular. We can provide good assistance with pheasant populations and pheasant management. So we can provide assistance pretty much anywhere except for the state in which we live. And that's fine. That's uh, the agency that the Missouri Department of Conservation provides extensive private land resources just through our private lands biology or conservationist program. So we will be working outside of Missouri, but we can provide uh, assistance to a variety of game birds, not just Bob White uh, quail, but a, a variety of game bird species. Got it. That makes sense. You know, working outside of the state that you're uh, currently, I, I can see where that would totally make sense. But from the land and legacy standpoint, it sounds like you guys have a pretty diverse experience and skill set with with various game birds. So that uh, that plays into what land and legacy is trying to accomplish very well. Kyle, any specific projects come to mind? Just kind of neat stuff that you've been doing with private landowners through your land and legacy work. Oh, trying to. Well, we actually were just recently added to land with to land and legacy, so okay. we we haven't been doing much of any. Uh, consulting yet but that, that's on the horizon um, <laughs> that's the goal and the re you know back to the question to frank the reason they picked us up not to toot our own horn but we're in missouri and we can't work in missouri because of our day jobs but as far as 
having the uh, expertise as far as public lands management, having done it, having worked with private landowners, having done the research, um, we're very diverse, I guess, in our backgrounds and being passionate bird hunters. And we prescribe... Uh, the majority of our management we prescribe is natural community type management. So they realized that we were singing to the same choir as they were just regarding different species. And uh, it really dovetails nice into what they're trying to do with land and legacy. Kyle, could you talk a little bit about the importance of that natural community, you know, resource management for upland birds, just because I'm just, I'm getting the sense that, you know, upland birds are very, they're so tied to the landscape that it makes sense that they would be, they would thrive based on management practices that are, you know, they're accustomed to that happen in nature. Talk about the importance of that across the spectrum of upland game birds. The management regarding natural community style management uh, plays in the bottom line is usable space. So, particularly quail, they're so picky. I mean, they really are a, a demanding little critter. They got short little legs and can't deal with, you know, from Missouri East, we have a lot of rainfall. So, we get too thick of vegetation quite often. And they can't deal with that. It's not good for brood rearing. We even have data showing adults don't want to use stuff that hasn't been disturbed recently in the last 12 months or so. Um, so, by utilizing nature, fire, things that form these landscapes, you know, fire, grazing, we can increase usable space as opposed to not using those tools and just using tractors and discs. Um, we can maintain maxim, the maximum amount of usable space, which is going to maximize our quail. You know, that's Fred Guthrie theory from years ago, and it has not been proven wrong. It seems in the past that everyone wants that silver bullet, right? Everybody's looking for a silver bullet, whether you're a deer guy, a turkey guy. Well, there are no silver bullets. And not bad-mouthing food plots. They have their place in certain, you know, states. The further north you go, they may matter into a pheasant world. There, there's a time and place for food plots. But to spend um, all of our time, 90% of our time, managing 10% of our property, which is in food plots, just doesn't make any sense. We need to focus our time on the maximum amount of space on our properties, and thus, in the case of quail, pheasants, prairie chickens, we need to maximize usable space across the landscape. I think this is a dumb question, but is usable space, is that the number one factor as far as the the ability for an upland game bird to survive? Yeah. Um, I'll speak on this a little bit, Calvin. You can jump in, but I totally agree with that. Um, usable space, is, is defined as uh, suitable permanent cover over a, a certain time period. And, and, it's ducked, and it works well with, with bobwhite quail, works well with, with the prairie grouse species, uh, rough grouse, pheasants. It all ties in nicely. Usable space is really the fundamental starting point. It's really the, 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 the building blocks of having good upland game bird populations. So as you maximize usable space, as you add usable living space to the landscape, then that follows that you're going to add, you're going to maximize your bird population. So that's the, that's the philosophy on which we manage our public lands. That's the philosophy on which we have 
prescribed to private land management as well. And it and the study that we've done in Missouri, the one that Kyle touched on, really just kind of drove that point home that this usable space concept is really the fundamental uh, building blocks of having good bird populations. Got it. And I think that's the way that I was framing it in my mind. And I was just trying to check that sort of in that usable space. That's the starting point. That's the building block. And then we can get into starting to talk about quality of that usable space, the better areas, the not so great areas, but the starting point is usable space. Absolutely. All right. I want to talk about quail and we're going to talk about that research project, but let me ask a couple of questions on the rough grouse uh, relocation to Missouri, just because I'm I'm curious in the sense that I saw some neat stuff in the release that I read about it, talking about you know first of all translocating the birds, but second of all there's a you know it's logical, but there was a plan in place. There was a plan in place to create this habitat, to manage it, maintain it, and to hopefully help this population of rough grouse establish itself. Fill me in and the rest of the listeners who are not familiar with the situation. What is the rough grouse situation in Missouri right now? Are they non-existent? Are they completely gone? What's going on with rough grouse in Missouri? And I'll leave it to whoever wants to jump in there. Well, I'll, uh, I'll speak to it first and then Kyle can, can add, um, the history of rough grouse, grouse in Missouri is that, that they were once a fairly abundant species across the state, but through management practices that didn't favor rough grouse, they, they declined to a point where right before the, the first release, there may have been a handful or so of grouse in the state, but nothing showing up on drumming counts. They may or may not have, have been a, a, a bird or, or few hanging on. So uh, it was it was pretty much a, an extirpated population. The, the landowners and uh, in that region of, of that part of Missouri, between it's called the Missouri River Hills, uh, there's an active rough grouse society chapter there. There's there's some kind of avid rough grouse hunters in that area, and they and they really wanted to see the grouse come back. And the Missouri Department of Conservation is in you know they're the they're the ones that, that determine which species are brought into the state for translocation and where they go. But before we do anything like that, so that we're good stewards of the birds, they had to ensure that the landscape was there to, to meet the habitat needs. So the department worked with the landowners through public land assistance and cost share to get the habitat in place. They worked hard on public land in that area. There's several thousand acres of public lands in that area, worked hard on creating early successional forest habitat on public land and on private land. And once our scientists and our administrators determined that the, that the land was there that could support a population, uh, then and only then did we make the ask to the Wisconsin DNR to get birds. So it was vital that we brought these birds back to make assurances, excuse me, assurances to the donor state, I mean, they weren't, they probably weren't keen to give birds to a state that didn't have habitat ready to go. So the habitat came first, and then Missouri uh, embarked on this translocation project. Kyle, anything to throw in there? Other than, no, other than, uh, you know, we had a, actually still had a hunting season as late as 2001. So it's, this isn't a bird that had been 
you know, gone from that landscape or very low numbers for 50 or 75 years. This has happened since I've worked for Missouri Department of Conservation. I mean, we still had a hunting season 20 years, less than 20 years ago. So uh, just the lack of, as you can imagine, the, the lack of timber harvest and, and on a rotational basis, we they kind of phase fizzled out, and but that's all restored. And I think they've got a a long-term plan of how that's going to rotate through the landscape so that so that it isn't just set the set the table put the birds in and no follow up they've got a multi-year plan of how to maintain that habitat here on out understood that was going to be my next question is how late or how recent was their hunting season so it sounds like right around the beginning of the century 2001 which is again it's not yesterday but it's also not that long ago. It's in you know my lifetime, your lifetime. And I think that's one of the scariest things that I hear about as as just somebody that's very passionate about upland birds and of course upland bird hunting. To hear about these populations disappearing, blinking out from areas in such a quick time period. I mean, it's just it really is scary for somebody that uh, that <laughs> spends a lot of a lot of their free time and a lot of my time in general thinking about upland birds. Yeah, think about uh, Frank and I have spent our whole career. I tell people sometimes, you know how frustrating it is to spend your whole life pursuing a bird and then your whole professional career trying to make more of a bird that doesn't seem to respond very well, uh, you know, uh, nationwide to, to all the all the effort we're trying to do. But we certainly do have some great success stories, you know, um, yeah. where we put habitat on the ground. We know what it takes. But, man, well, yeah, it's a lifetime of frustration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine all, all that I can do and the listeners can do is is thank guys like you, Kyle, and Frank, for, for the work that you do do to, to keep putting habitat on the ground for these birds and ensuring the future. A couple of more questions on the Missouri rough grouse. I think it's fascinating. So it sounds like from our earlier conversation, Frank, you and Kyle have hunted grouse in the North Country, Upper Great Lakes states, where it's commonly thought of as kind of the hotbed of rough grouse hunting right now. How does the cover compare down there in Missouri to the sort of the classic Upper Great Lakes Northwoods cover? Uh, It's quite different in terms of species composition. Sure. So if you're looking at uh, Missouri, we don't have alder bogs in in Missouri. Uh, we don't have the the classic aspen stands uh, that you would that you guys have in, in the North Country. What we do have are are species that uh, serve some of those same functions as those species that grouse rely on in the North. Uh, we have more mass producing species. We have more um, we have some catkin producing species that, you know, American witch hazel and things like that that the grouse would, would use to bud to bud on in the late winter, early spring. So we have those type of species that um, sort of serve as a almost a surrogate to what you guys have up north. So the the function or, or what we're trying to, to do in Missouri is create that early successional forest habitat, the same as what's been going on in the north to, to um help rough grouse. Rough grouse rely on that early successional habitat in Missouri. And they did they did historically. Grouse ranged all the way. There was rough grouse in Arkansas. I went to school in Arkansas and there was rough grouse there and sort of in the northern part of the state. So they have a wide range in terms of what they can use for different species composition, but it's that structure 
that is what is is what they're keying in on that stem density and that brood cover that that thick early successional habitat that provides great brood cover we can provide that down here it would probably be recognizable to you to you guys from a structure standpoint but the species composition would be quite different from what you guys are used to hunting and that's kind of what our experiences were in the north country is we kind of keyed in on early successional places that look like hey this looks like great brood rearing habitat and that's kind of what we hunted the same as kind of how you would do it in Missouri if if we ever get to a hunting season at some point for them. Yeah, I certainly pay a lot more attention to the actual species type today than I ever used to when I was growing up hunting these birds. You know, I used to just basically look for that visual picture what you're what you're referring to, the structure, the stem density, and that's how I'd, I would key in on certain areas when I was targeting grouse. So I would imagine a grouse hunter, it, you know, he would probably have a little bit. Uh, a little bit of a acclimation period hunting down in that cover, but they would probably wouldn't take them as long to figure out as, as maybe they might think. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get to a hunting season, but right. if we do, I think that um, grouse hunters from, you know, would, would be able to, to figure it out pretty quickly. And I know talking to some of the folks that hunted grouse in Missouri uh, up until 2001, some folks that are assisting on the grouse project, I was visiting with them, and they were talking about the same thing. When they hunted grouse in Missouri, they looked for, you know, that early successional habitat with high stem density, with good mast-bearing or mast-producing species, good brood-rearing species. And, and I said, look, it's not that dissimilar to what's up north. It's just the species are different. And so that that also talks about the resiliency in the of, of these upland game birds, you know, and to kind of step back and talk about Bob White a little bit, these things are found from Central America clear up to northern Iowa and sometimes even southern Wisconsin. So they have a huge latitudinal um, range, and they range all the way from the east coast to, to eastern Colorado. So they, they can use a variety of different species types, but it's that structure that's so important for them too. So they kind of uh, these birds are resilient in what they can use, but boy, it can be specific at times. Yeah, nothing short of amazing, really, what some of these upland birds can do, their ability to adapt to different habitat types and ranges. I mean, some of the ranges on these birds is incredible, like you said. So just to kind of wrap up the rough grouse portion, essentially Missouri is in a wait and see right now, translocating birds, hoping to reestablish maybe someday with the proper habitat management and some good fortune. There could be a hunting season again, but at the very least, just as a rough grouse hunter, it's cool to see that. And I certainly hope for the sake of the Missouri rough grouse hunters that you mentioned, Frank, I certainly hope that the birds thrive and survive there. And and perhaps one day they get hunting season again. That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's talk quail a little bit. Let's talk Missouri quail. I want to get into the project that you guys worked on, but kind of like we did for the rough grouse, let's set the stage. What is the current state of bobwhite quail hunting hunting slash bird populations in Missouri. Kyle? So like most of the range of the bobwhites, we've suffered, uh, you know, nearly a 90% decline if you go back to the 1940s, 50s, 60s. Um, And of course, that's massive habitat loss across the state of Missouri. Uh, A lot of people don't realize the state of Missouri is a giant cattle production, um, cow-calf production state. Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but with that becomes 
one of the largest fescue-dominated states in the United States. That is a bad thing most of the time for quail. I say the uh, digress in a moment, but the the cattle part. Frank and I use cattle actually in our quail management. But so anyway, massive decline across the country, and and no different here in the state of Missouri. Um, recently. Uh, read a deal that we used to harvest three million birds in the state back in the heyday, and you know now we're down into the <clears throat> maybe the hundred thousand range, you know, in good years. So, and as you can imagine, as those populations decline, so does the the hunters. The small game hunting has plummeted as well. It's those lines follow each other on the graph. Uh, when there's just not birds out there, people just aren't pursuing them as much. A lot of folks in Missouri that either don't have bird dogs anymore or that used to be diehard bird hunters, um, or if they do, a lot of them spend most of their two or three trips to pheasant hunt in South Dakota or Kansas or Nebraska or somewhere and don't hunt near as hard in, in Missouri. So so it's been tough, but, but there are some pockets that are pretty good. We've had some good hatch years. We Certain parts of the state are better than others, of course, as you can imagine. Our public lands, some of it does really well. Um, some of it is the the anchor point. We have some islands of really great habitat, and then landowners that are that are interested in quail do really well, of course, adjacent to those areas of of increasing their quail uh, because there's that nice public land anchor point. So, kind of depressing long term, but <laughs> um, but there are some. I guess of some hope on the horizon and and been some good movements for a variety of agencies. Our own agency is is doing some things different. Um, Quail Forever is real active in the state now. We've got several farm bureau biologists. Uh, so there's several things on the horizon here that are in favor for the quail making a, a little rebound here in Missouri. All right. I want to add a little bit of context to the massive decline that you're talking about, Kyle, because I think maybe my mind and others' minds, sometimes when you hear upwards of 90% decline in, in quail numbers, the story starts to get told in my mind. So I'm thinking, you know, was this a pristine landscape that was untouched and all of a sudden we came in, it was developed, habitat was lost, birds are gone? Or is there a story there on the landscape that quail numbers shot up due to certain land management practices and it wasn't just you know raw vacant land you know what is the historical story of quail in missouri yeah so you you're on to something exactly right so you know if we go you can always say how far back do you want to go if we go back far enough if we go back 500 years right we we don't know what those quail populations were but we do know that for sure, Missouri, um, at least a third of it was wide open prairie, would have had birds on it. Uh, we would have been a transition, you know, zone of savanna and woodland, and then transitioning into some of the heavier timber of the true Ozarks, um, which would have had very limited quail. But, but your point being, yes, there would have been actually a spike in quail. So when you talk about a 90% decline since the 40s, 50s, 60s, somewhere in there, those were probably air quotes artificial quail highs. The land the land use completely changed. Farming practices were dirty to say the least, um, and the quail actually benefited uh, short term wise uh, the way the the land was managed back in those 
mid-century. Um, then things started back down the other way. You know, farming practices got more efficient, uh, introduction of non-native forages, and of course, urbanization, all kinds of things, you know, the, the story, everything stacked against them. But certainly we went through an artificial high period that would have not compared to two, three, four hundred years ago. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And that's the context that I want to put in there just because guys like you and Frank, you understand it, you see it, you live it, you breathe it every day, you know that story. But to the average bird hunter like myself, sometimes we we hear about those you know, air quotes, artificial high. And you think, man, those were the glory days when that wasn't necessarily just dumb luck, you know, nature on the landscape. Those, those artificial highs had influence as well. So I just think it's important for all of us to understand the influences and the context around these historical bird populations. And I think the more we know, the better. Agreed. Regarding the study that you did with Missouri quail, Let's start from the top. What was the goal? What were you trying to determine, and how did you go about doing it? Uh, well, I'll, I'll take that one. Uh, Kyle and I have been uh, managers in Missouri for, you know, Kyle, I, I've been there 15 years. Kyle's been there, I think, 20 or 21. So we've, uh, we have seen uh, and practiced quail management for a number of years, and we were not getting the results that we thought we should be getting we were not seeing the responses to our management that we thought we should be seeing. Uh, keep in mind, we were managing on a on this model that we call the traditional model. So if you think about quail, even in a lot of our old literature from the Department of Conservation, they call quail farm game. So it was a quail were a were a byproduct of farming practices and, and quote agricultural bird. And so we kind of managed on that model. We had areas that we that on our public land areas we would take a an area we would break it up into small units say 20 to 40 acres to kind of mimic those small farm sizes we would put hedgerows around those or tree or shrub plantings around those we would put a lot of food plots in there to kind of mimic that diverse farming uh, regime we added some native grass for nesting cover of course but but it was a very very fragmented uh, landscape. It was highly um, it, it was highly dissected, and it was based and it was kind of geared for quail winter survival and quail food because that's where people hunted. You know, when people hunted, they found them near food plots or they found them near shrub rows or shrub plantings, and so that's kind of what we thought was the way to go to manage quail. Well, at the same time, we have these large grassland areas that are native prairies. Uh, their their landscapes that have been intact for thousands of years. They have a diverse native plant comp- species composition. They have scattered shrubs, plum thickets, blackberry thickets, dogwood thickets. Kind of think if you've been into that western Kansas, western Oklahoma type of landscape, it sort of mimics that with a lot more rain here. But our quail numbers there were very were very good, two to three times higher than our managed areas. So we were beginning to ask the question: We're you know we're doing the best that we can to manage quail on these traditional sites and then by accident essentially on these grassland areas that are being managed with fire and grazing quail are doing quite well so we we thought you know perhaps the management that we're doing for quail specifically given the landscape changes that we've noticed around us are not the best ways to manage quail in 
you know, in the 21st century. So we were able to get some dollars and some, some funding to do this large-scale study where we took grassland areas. So we had three large grassland areas and put radios on quail there and compared them to quail populations that were on our traditionally managed areas. So we radio collared 60 birds per site. Uh, for five years. We actually did two years of pilot data, so we've got seven years of data built up to compare things like nest success, adult survival, movement. We also did some work with broods and, and overwinter survival that, that another some students at NU did. But we were trying to get at these demographic variables that are driving populations. Uh, so that is kind of the, the genesis of the study. That's That's what got us going is is seeing these quite good quail populations on these grassland areas, seeing that where we're really focusing on quail management with lots of inputs, lots of the traditional management styles, quail were really struggling. Uh, in fact, our populations were, were de- decreasing at a small rate. On some years, if we could stay level with the year before, that was a success. And that's not a success in our mind. We want to see populations increase over the long term. And we just weren't getting it the way we have been doing it before. So uh, a change needed to be made. And this study is, is sort of the, the the outcome of those questions that we started asking ourselves. Cool. Kyle, anything to add or uh, continue on there uh, on the study? Yeah, well, I can continue on and we can just move right on into what we found. Let's so do it. Our, our professional and anecdotal and hunting observations that were saying, hey, on these public grassland areas, we seem to have more birds than these traditional managed areas. Well, that the data came out to prove exactly that. So you might think, well, you spent a lot of money to, to prove something that was already there. Well, we've got a lot more information, though, than that. What we were able to find out is not only... Nesting success was, you know, on average 13% higher. Uh, that's significant. We had higher clutch sizes uh, on these grasslands. We have, anyway, the list goes on and on and on. They, these grasslands were superior. Uh, but we also have lots of data on bird movement and habitat selection and habitat preference, management um, unit preference. So that's where we get into hey, they're in these burn units, they're in these graze units, they're avoiding these idle units, um, those kind of things. That matters to other managers across the state. When we can start documenting that, hey, if you're managing with only this technique on a third of your acres, we have data now that can prove that you're not going to get much quail production on the other two-thirds of your area. That's not good. If if we're in the business of maximizing quail, we have to maximize the amount of acres that we are putting towards that quail production factory, right? And a lot of cases on public land, I mean, as an entire agency, we weren't doing that. And it wasn't anyone's fault. It wasn't for lack of trying. It was um, a lack of understanding, perhaps, of... Uh, Frank and I kind of blame it on the evolution of the landscape. They broke those areas out back in the 1970s to mimic the old dairy farms, back when the broken up landscape in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and there was quail everywhere. There was dairy farms everywhere. Well, we argue that 
that may have worked back then, but now the landscape around us has changed so much that these public areas are the only game in town in a lot of cases. We are surrounded by a hostile landscape for quail. And when you put that into maybe a 2,000 to 3,000 acre public area, island of, of decent habitat surrounded by a hostile landscape, it doesn't function the same as it used to back when the entire county was all similar type habitat. So if we're going to be operating on these on these public lands, and, and they are at an island, the grasslands is certainly more productive. We have, we've proved that. And this data set is big. We're talking 1,500 radio collared birds over five years, over 500 nests monitored. This is nothing to sneeze at. This is a giant data set. And it also dispelled a lot of things we thought we knew. You spend your career doing stuff that you think is good for for whatever species you're after, you've been taught by your predecessors, you read it, I don't know where it all comes from, but we all get things beat into our head and that we think we know. And when you put radio colors on quail, they don't lie. And it's interesting because it sure changed our attitude on on several things. We we discovered some nest timing information we didn't realize here in Missouri was was happening and, and some habitat selection preferences. So... A uh, real game changer for us in our career and and the agency as a whole of where we need to move towards uh, more open grassland management for quail production in this state. Excellent. Yeah, in an ideal scenario, you know, we should be getting smarter every day. We should learn from our mistakes, learn from from what we've seen in the past, but also the as we move on through time, where we get additional perspective and and context with each passing season and and in this case you know you had a little bit of a some technology influence in there you know you're putting radio collars on birds and you're tracking birds and that's giving you you know that's modern day technology giving you insight that you did not previously have and you guys are are learning from it along with with the rest of us which is cool you know we've been talking a lot about conservation and habitat on this podcast recently and Project Upland Podcast is typically known as a, you know, it's a hunting, it's definitely a hunting centric podcast. But from my perspective, I mean, the more and more I learn about the birds that I pursue and their habitat, their ecology, the threats, what they need to survive. I mean, I think I become a better hunter for that. And I think, you know, that's my hope for the listeners. That's why we have these conversations, which, which I think is, that's kind of why, why I find myself talking to you guys today, even though I don't hunt quail, but I hope to someday. And uh, it's very cool. Did you guys learn anything? Or I guess what, I know you learned something. What were some of those things that you learned via the radio callers with respect to birds moving around and areas they prefer? What were some of those things that you keyed in off of based on the, the tracking studies, Frank? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So what we have, you know, we've always known that quail are a bird of disturbance, that they that they need disturbance because they they have a, a life history that demands it. They have short legs, so they have to have some bare ground to move around in. We're not talking about bare ground like plowed crop fields. We're talking about spaces of, of little to no vegetation between clumps of vegetation or, or some kind of overhead canopy that has a, an open area underneath. Because these, these little chicks, when they're hatched, they're only the size of a bumblebee. Their legs are so tiny, they need bare ground to be able to traverse through the vegetation. So we, we've always known quail were a bird of disturbance. I guess what really opened my eyes in this study and these radios is 
is just how demanding they are about this disturbance and about the frequency of disturbance that we must do or we must have in high rainfall landscapes to manage for quail. So we're talking, say, from you know the, the eastern third of Kansas on east, where we're averaging 35-inch rainfall to 40-plus-inch uh, rainfall. That, those kind of rainfall rates and heavy clay soils mean that there's a lot of vegetation on the ground. And we, we always knew that we needed to disturb this, this landscape through fire or through grazing probably once every three years to maximize quail production. And what the radios were showing us were exactly the places these quail were using. And we could overlay the management of those places, whether we had burned it, whether we had grazed it, whether we had dissed it, or whether we had done nothing to it. We could overlay those those management types on top of these quail behavior or these quail movements to tell us exactly what units quail were preferring. And what it's showing was that much after about a year of past disturbance, quail really were, weren't using it much. They were kind of avoiding it. So we could get, for instance, we could get good use of a burned area for about a year, but after that it became too thick and quail more or less avoided it. So we were managing on a three-year rotation. We probably need to start managing on an every-other-year rotation. These radios also told us that if we added grazing to the mix, that quail started using that area. So we're not talking about really heavy grazing that you see on a lot of private lands. This is conservation-type grazing where we're putting cattle in the first part of May and taking them out in August at a fairly moderate stocking rate. So we're getting, we're getting some disturbance, but we're not taking the vegetation all the way down to, to the ground level. But once we started introducing grazing to our units, the quail responded. We have some really great maps, some really great photographs that we show in our presentations that show a complete lack of bird use on one year. We add grazing to that unit the next year and birds filled in like with a magnet. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, so I really learned a lot about the frequency of disturbance that we need to apply in order for quail to really be maximized. And without these radios, we would probably still be operating in that, well, one out of every three years is okay. But that's really changed our mind. Kyle, anything in addition there? Yeah, I want to mention uh, nest timing was another one. Um, and a lot of what we we kind of uncovered was new for Missouri. And again, this is be- partly because this is the biggest whale research project ever done in Missouri. And most of the previous studies were over winter, right? People hunt them in the wintertime. That's typically when people would focus on researching them uh, in the Midwest for some reason. Well, as a manager, we were worried about production, but the nest timing information we uncovered was interesting, and it it doesn't go against anything that Tall Timbers, the you know big research quail research facility down on the Florida Georgia line, or stuff out of Texas or Oklahoma. We weren't uncovering anything new, but for some reason. The stuff that they were finding out at those places had not been accepted here in the Midwest. Like, well, that's Florida. Well, that's Texas. Well, guess what? The quail, even though it's different landscapes, they a quail's still a quail in Florida, same as Missouri. So it was always known or thought that June 15th was the magic 
peak hatch for quail in Missouri. And yeah, there's some re-nesting and there's a little bit of effort. We've all killed some young birds early in the season, but for the most part, you know, the thought was 75% of the birds are hatched mid-June. And uh, our data proved quite differently. Um, there really was no peak. If you had to pick a peak, it was about the last week of June. But we had just as many birds hatching in August as we have in June. And that held true for every year of the study. In fact, over 50% of our nests didn't even begin incubation until after July 1. And you might be thinking, well, that's you've had a bunch of re-nest. Actually, we only had a 13% re-nesting effort. So, you know, those things matter as an, as an agency, as a public lands manager, knowing, air quotes, what we thought we knew, that, well, June's peak hatch, if we had haying as a tool, if we were going to hay part of a wildlife area, years ago, somebody said, hey, let's move that to July 15th. It'll get us past the nesting season. So that's been the standard operating date for, you know, decades. And it turns out, if we want to grow quail on a wildlife area, there's no good time to hay it in the summer. There's nests all summer. Um, so that's significant management implications to our managers out there, as well as private lands recommendations. Certainly, again, you know, we're talking where we're trying to maximize quail. And it wouldn't just be haying. Uh, we've got information. If you've got to go out and deal with invasive species. We have a lot of Cerisa lespedeza down here. And if you're going to run a four-wheeler and grid an entire 300-acre unit, well, we're going to have some nest casualties out of that, depending on what time of year you're doing that. So with this kind of information, we know that they won't nest in burn units the first half of the summer because there isn't enough overhead cover. So we can now recommend doing those type of grid spraying efforts in June in your burn units and then move to the thicker unburned units, which the birds prefer to vacate for August nests and prefer to go into something that has been disturbed. Uh, so anyway, those kinds of things um, were really eye-opening and a game changer for a lot of our field staff of how we operate. Got it. Earlier, Kyle, I think it was you, you mentioned Quail Forever and a few of the other few of the other partners. Anybody else uh, anybody else that you're working with as an agency, any other good, solid partners working with on projects, doing the research, that kind of stuff? Not necessarily research here in Missouri, but the MBCI, the national level, they have a uh, grassland and grazing specialist now, and that person is housed here in Missouri. So that's nice. Quail Forever has put on several biologists in this state. So there is a huge push, you know in the last 10 years to, to really try to make a difference. Some of the managed land we manage in, in Missouri is owned by the Corps of Engineers, and we have management rights over it. So I guess indirectly we have some other partners like that that are, that are jumping in. Turkey Federation, of course, is in favor of most of the habitat practices we're doing because they also benefit turkeys. Sure. So the list, the list is quite long. Excellent. Well, I want to give both of you guys one more chance. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about upland hunting in general, but I want to give you both one more chance to kind of hammer home uh, any particular points regarding quail and research that you've done. And I'll ask this question. As you look forward as a, as a public wildlife manager, what are the one, two, three most important factors for the future of bobwhite quail? Frank, we'll start with you. Well, in my mind, the, the number one factor is 
first, if we can if we can expand the amount of land under under active management, that's going to be the key. Like we talked about, usable space is the fundamental building block of, of Bob White populations. In order to maximize and increase usable space, we're going to we're going to need to acquire not necessarily acquire it from an agency standpoint, but but have get more landowner buy-in to increase the habitat uh, base on the ground. Because if we can increase the amount of usable space out there, we can really increase quail. If you think about on our public lands, <clears throat> once let's say if we get to a point on our public lands in Missouri where we've got all of our land completely usable for quail and our usable space <clears throat> is maximized, well, that's going to be great. And I, I can't wait to get to that point. But once we do, our populations are just going to remain at some kind of a of a mean point. We're never going to see drastic increases in population because our usable space is maximized. So we're going to have to add habitat under management. And we've got a lot of partners working on that from from private consultants like Land and Legacy, uh, from agencies that have private lands conservationists that are helping landowners. Uh, we're, we're seeing a, an increase in our habitat base around some of our public lands that has, has really been promising. But I think the key to, to really increasing bird numbers and therefore opportunity and access for, for hunting is going to be increasing that habitat base. That's really going to be important. Cool. Kyle? Well, Missouri Department of Conservation only owns 3% of the land in the state, so the battle for quail recovery cannot be won on public land alone. We certainly need to be the examples, and certainly uh, the way public land is distributed across Missouri, it's almost in every county, which is really nice. Those can serve, like I had previously stated, as, as an anchor point. But as Frank said, we've got to get the private lands involved. That's on a countywide scale, statewide scale, that's the only way we make we really move the needle in a significant way to change population levels. All right. Both of you guys have expressed your passion for bird hunting and sounds like both of you got started in bird hunting a long time ago when you were younger. You have some experience working in different areas, also hunting in different areas. I know you've taken some trips. Uh, Frank if you've got if you've got a place to go, what are what are some of your favorite upland hunts that you've been on? Some of your favorite pursuits, birds to hunt, and uh, where are you going this year, if anywhere? So my my very favorite upland hunt that I've ever done was a trip to North Central Montana for sharp-tailed grouse, Hungarian partridge, and, and sage grouse. I took this trip two years in a row, oh about a little over a decade ago, and. Things haven't worked out to go back because of low bird numbers and, you know, other other mitigating factors at home. But that was an excellent hunt. I uh, was able to I'd, – I'd hunted sharp tails before but I'd, in North Dakota, but I'd never hunted them. Of course, in Montana, I'd never hunted Hungarian partridge or sage grouse. And just epic birds in beautiful landscapes and in intact landscapes where a guy could walk for miles and not encounter, you know, either another hunter or – some kind of a civilization, in fact, I guess you could say. It was yeah. just probably my favorite my favorite hunt. The one that I take annually is always a Western Kansas combination quail and pheasant hunt. Usually never miss that. That's always a, that's always a great hunt uh, to do. Kyle and I have been out of state on, on a few hunts, and uh, as, as kind of business partners and as friends, we, 
we go hunting quite a bit. We fish quite a bit together. Uh, we're looking forward to a hunt this year uh, in Wyoming for sage grouse and blue grouse. We're starting to try to make that happen this year. So that's what we have coming up. Of course, we have hopes for, you know, there's there's been great precipitation in the southwest, and usually that means quail. So if we could pull off a southwest uh, desert quail hunt, we would love to do that too. But wildlife biologists are not exactly known for our deep pockets. So we have to try to, we have to try to figure out ways to make that happen. But, but a guy can dream. I think our, our hunt this year, I think we're really want to focus on the sage grouse and, and blue grouse deal. Nice. Yeah. Well, you guys are, you know, you're wildlife biologists, you're also side hustling. So that helps, but that also cuts into your hunting time too, I'm sure. (laughs) Oh, we've talked about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Kyle, how about you? Oh, probably my favorite, um, Past hunts, uh, we used to, my dad and brother and my dad's college football buddy, uh, for several years went to North Dakota. Uh, same kind of deal, you know, not as, maybe not as scenic as, as Montana, but I love the, just so desolate, you know, no houses for miles. And, yeah. and we were up there and, uh, I guess they're about 2000, started in 2003 and went till 2012 or 13, about 10 years straight, but we would kill, kill our pheasants each day you know in a good year but then also get some hungarian partridge and and sharp-tailed grouse the diversity was just a real treat to get to see different birds you never knew when the dog locked up what might what might come up unfortunately the area we were going to is the highest loss of crp in the united states so that put a pretty big kibosh on that hunt (laughs) i need to find i've I've heard parts of North Dakota are kind of back. I need to find a different place to go. But had several. We do an annual Western Kansas hunt as well. Uh, my dad and I and and my nephews and we have some of our own land in southeast Kansas that no pheasants there, just quail. But we hunt that a couple times every year. So lots of enjoyable hunts over the years. Lots of memories with with family and it's always a treat wherever I go. If, if there's dogs and birds, it's it's a good time. You and a lot of other people, uh, my, myself included, are, are nodding their heads in agreement, Kyle. So good stuff. Well, guys, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the Project Upland podcast. This was a great conversation, educational for myself and hopefully the listeners. I want to give you a, a chance to, if folks have questions and they could come at it from a few different angles here, if you potentially had landowners listening that were interested in your consulting work or folks had questions about Missouri upland birds, I, I think you two would be great contacts there. Where, What is the best way for people to reach you? And Frank, start with you. Probably the best way, I think, would be um, uh, through the Land and Legacy folks. So info at landandlegacy.tv is the email. Info at landandlegacy.tv is the email that, that goes straight to Land and Legacy, and then they can get questions to straight to us or contact straight to us. That's probably the easiest way, I would say. Uh, Kyle, what do you think? Yeah, certainly on the private landowner side or the consulting side, that would be the route to go. Um, if there's some, you know, Missouri Department of Conservation type stuff or day job type questions, you know, we can be found. I'm out of the Bolivar, Missouri office, and he's out of the Neosho, Missouri office. So folks could track us down easy enough on the Missouri Department of Conservation website and, and get some contact info that way. Perfect. Sounds good, guys. I will make sure the Land and Legacy stuff is included in the show notes so they can 
track you down that way. Otherwise, uh, like you said, I don't think you'll be too hard to find. I do really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This was a ton of fun. Thanks for your time, guys, and have a great day and have a great hunting season. Well, thank you, too. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. The podcast is also brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dogs Your Collars, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.